Hello, I'm Michael Hainsworth. Open banking isn't exactly something most consumers would get excited about. But remember closed systems like CompuServe, America Online, and Apple World. They all failed because the open standards of the internet rose to prominence. So what will it take to bring the financial services sector into the 21st century? For insight, we turn to EY partner and open banking expert Abhishek Sinha. We began by talking about how open banking breaks the monopoly that banks and non-bank financial institutions currently have on their customer data. So the question becomes, what is that data? And what makes it so valuable in the first place? In our world today, data is the thing which underlies every single piece of interaction that we have. We've gotten so used to our mobile app giving us a nudge or giving us a prompt that something's happened which may be, we may be interested in. We've gotten used to the fact that when we scroll on Facebook, it shows up the stories that are high interest to us. When we go out and you know we interact with anything in the digital world, we expect a very high degree of personalization. All of those things are driven by data. So the more data an organization has about you, the better they can actually tailor the products and services to what you need as a consumer. Is the end game here essentially machine learning and artificial intelligence? We need to open up the banking system to the incredible amount of data that we've got so that we can leverage the benefits of AI and ML. Well, the banking sector is already doing that to a, to a large extent. Um, I don't think you know, the characterization the banks haven't been innovative isn't all that true. I think the banks have been quite innovative, but I think the on, on comparison, what we found is big tech has been driving the innovation a lot harder and faster than banks. Um, but banks are catching up. And if you look at a number of, you know, examples across the world, um, you know, especially if you go far east, right, in, in the banking circles, in, in that industry, when we talk about innovation, we talk about the likes of Ant Financial and Alibaba and you know, uh, DBS Bank. There's, there's so many of those tech companies which are now financial services organization. And it's, it's really setting a new standard for what innovation means and how do you use data to drive some of that. So give me an example that we in the Western world could recognize as valuable to us, the end consumer. If you would have noticed in the last 12 to 18 months, a number of our Canadian financial services uh, organizations have embarked and, and started creating end-to-end -end user journeys, right? So think about the process of buying a home. Nobody um, has an ambition that they want a mortgage, right? No one grows up thinking, oh, you know, I really wish I had, you know, a million dollar mortgage. Nobody wants that, right? What people want is, I want to get, live in a good neighborhood. You know, I, I want to live in a house, which is whatever, three, four bedroom house. And, you know, I want these kinds of things that I want to be able to consume. By starting to create some of those end-to-end -end journeys where they connect these consumers right from, I need to start thinking about how much I can afford to, hey, what sort of realtor should I work with to, you know, who should do the property inspection and where do I get this lawyer to the closing part? The banks have started 
including all of these things as a part of their platform as an end-to-end journey. Again, all of that underpinned by how much they know about you and what data you're willing to share with them. And this model has been around for quite some time, Far East, and it's just slowly now coming into Canada, but it is here, right? There are three key pillars the report authors, Torsten Koppel and Jeremy Kronick, suggest we focus upon. Generating value for consumers, so we've sort of touched on that point, but also building secure infrastructure for data sharing and improved regulatory frameworks to protect consumers. Uh, What does building secure infrastructure for data sharing look like, and with whom would we be sharing this data? Stepping back, The question is who's sharing the data and what authority do they have to share the data, right? So answering the first question is we as consumers um, own our data, right? And that is the, the new sort of larger movement or the broader movement to being, you know, the sovereign owners of our data. Now, no matter who holds the data, where that interaction happened, if you look at some of the regulations around GDPR and others, it gives customers the rights to their data. The GDPR being the general data protection regulations brought in by the EU. That's right. That then largely forced the rest of the world to follow suit. Because if you're a big corporation and you're in Europe, you're going to have to comply with those regulations. And if you're elsewhere in the world, you might as well roll them out there too. Exactly. Right. So it's, it's a little bit of a democratization movement happening there. Right. And that's fundamentally what it is. Now, Securely sharing data is is important. Um, But before we understand what does securely sharing data mean, let's look at what does unsecurely sharing data mean, right? So uh, I think it's the recent study which was done by the Senate committee, which sort of identified that about 30% of Canadians already share their data with third parties by supplying them with user IDs and passwords to log into their banking systems, right? And the technology that these third parties use is something called screen scraping. So they have this machine which goes in and pretends to be URI, and the machine sort of logs into your bank's website just the way you and I would, and they would read everything that they can off this website. Now this is problematic in a number of different ways. One, it likely voids um, any fraud protection or contractual liabilities, obligations that you have with that banking service provider because you promise not to share your user ID and password. But the other thing which it does, um, and it's sort of, it's probably a little bit more sinister, is that it allows this provider to actually take all the data which is there, right? There's no way for a consumer to actually control what gets shared and for what purpose does it get shared. So if I log into my internet banking, not only do I see my balances, I see all my transactions, I see where I did those transactions, I see every other type of holding that my, I might have. I see things like, hey, pre-approved offers which the bank has in for me, right? So that's just, uh, you know, I'm sort of giving carte blanche to this person or this organization to come in and just take everything. So that has been sort of established as, you know, that's a bad practice. We don't want to propagate that, right? And it sort of opens the door for, you know, bad actors in the cyber world to try and steal data and identity theft. And even in the best case scenario, screen scraping means that that company 
is going to have to keep on top of how it scrapes because if your banking provider changes anything in the way that website looks, yep. it could mess up the ability to pull down that data in the first place. And that stifles innovation. Absolutely. Right. So then the question becomes, okay, I don't want to do screen scraping, yet the customer, the consumer wants me to get access to that data. So we create these constructs called APIs, application programming interfaces. And what APIs do is they are very targeted in terms of a request which gets provided and a response which you get back from the request. So I can create an API which only shares, for example, how many accounts do I have? Or what is the balance on the accounts? It doesn't share anything else, right? So the security, Secure infrastructure for data sharing is really around establishing a set of standards for two organizations to share data uh, in a very secured, standardized way. You brought up an interesting point. There is an absence of standards right now. Where are we on ensuring that that happens? We know in other industries like the automotive industry, if you're going to have self-driving cars talking to each other, you all have to be able to speak the same language. How do we ensure the banking sector is speaking the same language as well? Yeah, I, I think um, if you look across the world, um, different markets have adopted different ways to get to that standard. And there isn't a one standard which sort of rules them all. Um, you know, the need for standard in financial services has been, um, has been in discussion for the last 20 years, 25 years with things like IFX as a standard international uh, financial data exchange standards um, and, and so on. But in the context of consumer directed finance or open banking, you've got the UK, which has set up uh, an organization called OBIE, Open Banking Implementation Entity, that has a standard in Australia. Uh, the regulation set up a standard for customer data rights of how they would share the data. In Canada and in, in the U.S., the industry has actually coalesced together and uh, decided to use what's called as the financial data exchange FDX, and they're using that as a standard going forward. In fact, um, I think it was announced maybe about two months ago that uh, a number of the large Canadian financial institutions and other fintech players have all sort of endorsed and uh, decided to adopt the FDX as the standard for data exchange in Canada. It sounds like we're building a Tower of Babel. Why do you say that? Insofar as we're all, it, it, just a biblical reference, really, that um, <laughs> all of these people came together to build this tower to reach heaven. And I suppose in this case, the metaphor is that open banking standard of Valhalla. Yet at one point, all of their uh, various languages were scrambled and they couldn't complete the tower. Uh, how do we complete the tower if we have a fragmentation of these standards around the world? That's a great question. Um, th there are a lot of organizations in that space which, um, which do this function of translating from one standard to another. And that's been necessitated by the way the standards have evolved over a period of time, right? Now to expect that everyone in the world is gonna come together and agree on one set of standards to do things, I think it's a little bit of a stretch um, in, in the way financial services are uh, set up and governed along the, uh, around the world. Um, there are different jurisdictional restrictions and rules and regulations which you need to sort of align to. And so, you know, if, if you look at it more broadly, there's four or five standards which are going to emerge and we'll probably have a lot of interoperability between the standards through, you know, different widgets which uh, people have. 
Back to the API discussion. Back to the API discussion, yes. The Institute is proposing a gradual implementation of open banking. Yes. In an industry that's made its billions by being risk adverse, are the financial services with the fewest regulatory hurdles the thin edge of the wedge to pry open the entire industry to this concept? Let's take two data points, right, to sort of unpack that a little bit. Data point number one, Canadians in particular have a very high degree of trust in their banks. And we're also uh, in the world, the ones who use ATM machines, if not the most, among the most. We seem to have this history of this, don't we? Yeah, yeah, it is. And, and so it's a little bit of a consumer demand-led response, which you would get from the industry, right? The service providers are going to provide the services consumers need. And, and so going back to the trust topic a little bit, right? The reason they have that kind of trust, and you can argue many different ways why Canadian consumers have that kind of trust, but the reality is they do have that trust. And they depend on banks to be risk averse, right? The purpose of why you and I put money in a bank is we want it safe and secure, right? We don't want to put it under a mattress where if we get robbed in the house and you know we're left broke. We want the banks to be secure and safe. So by definitions, banks are risk averse. But I think what is happening right now is financial services industry is looking around and saying, what customers expect from us is changing and we need to be able to evolve to meet those kinds of needs, right? Have, will there be erosion? Maybe, maybe there will be erosion, but um, it's unlikely that it's going to happen in, in a big way in a short amount of time. It's not going to happen overnight. It, it, it's something which is going to take time. And by having that kind of time gives the opportunity for all players in the industry to sort of respond that way. How do we use the fintechs to convince the more risk-adverse big six to adopt open banking standards? Consumers need to lead some of that as well, right? So if we see, uh, you know, someone come in with a business model, which, you know, is open to breaking things, um, so far the evidence, and, and, you know, there's, there's a survey that we've just completed, you had just completed on Canadian customers and their willingness to share data. And the number one thing that we found in that is consumers mainly want to work with big banks and credit unions because of that trust factor, right? And so the fintechs coming in, when they're successful, as they're successful, and as they sort of open up new value propositions and create new value paradigms, we will find that the banks would respond and they would um, sort of either through um, offering similar types of products and services or through acquisitions or through partnerships, um, it will permeate across. But it's a question of, you know, who's going to drive the customer, the change in the customer behavior, right? That becomes a key question. Another key question, what risks do institutions often miss when it comes to building secure infrastructure for data sharing? The biggest um, pieces that they need to take care of when they're creating these kinds of infrastructures is really the security aspect of it, right? What does that security mean? Um, the other piece which we are still working on from a Canadian context is the regulatory regime that protects 
this exchange and then you sort of alluded to a, a little bit earlier that we need um, some updates in our regulatory environment to be able to enable the secure data sharing piece. What are some of those legislative changes that we need to engage in? Because we know we have privacy protocols already in place. We have a privacy commissioner who will raise cane if we find ourselves uh, on the wrong side of that. But to your point, a lot of those privacy protocols and legislative frameworks were established in the very early days of the Internet. Right, right. The question is, do we need to update our privacy legislation? The answer is absolutely yes. And Canada and the, the, uh, the Privacy Commission of Canada is already sort of working on that uh, to sort of come up with, you know, um, a new set of regulations which are modeled around some of the leading thinking going on in other parts of the world. So there is a consultation process which is going on right now. The industry is being consulted. Um, you know, all players in that ecosystem are being consulted to figure out how do we create that uh, that uniform layer, which has predictability and protection for the Canadian consumers as well as for the industry, right? In Canada, if you see how, and, and the report uh, sort of alludes to this and, and explains it quite well, we have um, a fragmentation in terms of the different regulatory bodies that have oversight over the players in this ecosystem, right? And we also have some holes, right? And, and the holes are predominantly to do with these fintechs, the fintechs who are coming in, who are creating all of these innovative products and solutions. There isn't the mechanism in place to have the right kind of regulatory oversight into the products and services these players are offering into the market. So we've got the credit unions who've got their own sort of regulatory regime, we've got the banks who've got their own regulatory regime, insurance has its sort of own set of rules, though even under OSFI, they, they still have you know, a separation between what the banks do and what the insurance companies do. Securities regulation is also provincial and federal. So it, it's a little bit sort of all over the place. And in the past, you know, we in Canada have tried to go down the path of trying to unify uh, a lot of these uh, regulations and legislative bodies, not legislative bodies, the regulations themselves. But, you know, it becomes a little bit of a, a question around, you know, how do we move this thing forward? And who's going to pick up the baton to say that, you know, this is, uh, this is something that we need to get behind? What are your answers to those questions? We've tried to do that. We've tried to move things along quite a bit. Uh, there's been a, a robust consultation process, which the Senate committee uh, started and, and the Open Banking Advisory Committee started under the Department of Finance. And they're sort of pushing towards a framework that would be, um, that would take the interests of the players in the ecosystem, whether it's the big banks or it's the fintech community or it's the privacy advocates, you know, they've been listening to all of these different players and they're looking to try and establish what would be the rules of the game there. The other piece, which is super interesting and it doesn't get mentioned enough in the context of consumer directed finance and open banking is the digital identity framework. And, and to me and, and to us at EY, I think we think that is absolutely one of the cornerstones 
around which we can actually get to a more secure and fair open banking scenario and something which enables the Canadian consumers to have the option or to choose who they want to work with, right? And we've made some progress on that as well. So provinces have made progress on that. BC's got um, legislation which deals with uh, uh, digital identity. We've got Alberta, who's got some legislation dealing with uh, digital identity. Quebec announced, uh, I think about three months ago, that they were examining rolling out a digital identity program for Quebec. The Treasury Board Secretariat on the part of the federal government has made similar announcements. So you could see the intent and you can see the, the sort of push towards getting some of those regulatory pieces in place before we can, you know, fully embrace what open banking has to offer. Let's go from digital identity framework to what would constitute a clear liability framework? Because when something goes wrong, heads must roll. It's a million dollar question, right? There are many, many different aspects to that liability framework. We got to examine that problem from, from a few different perspectives. One is there is an unsaid liability framework which probably already exists in the market. And that is through bilateral contracts and relationships which organizations have with each other for data sharing, right? Um, and you share that data uh, and you set up some terms under which you sort of govern that sharing of the data. We've got, you know, the big tech companies who have, you know, standard sort of data sharing mechanisms in place with a lot of analytics organizations. So if I wanted to do, um, you know, a machine learning algorithm based on, you know, uh, tweets, I could do that because I can source that data under certain conditions. So we've, we've already established some of these rules in, in the ecosystem. What becomes hard is that we take all of these different players and we try and standardize a liability framework for the entire country. That's the hard part because not all players in that ecosystem are of the same size and stature. Uh, not all of them can afford to take on the same kind of financial liability and, you know, any penalties associated with breaches. And so, you know, that, that's, you know, something that we're still working through as an industry. And I guess we would continue to work through until we get to a solution which sort of works for Canada. Um, unfortunately, there isn't like a silver bullet to deal with that liability issue just yet. What are some of the things that we need to educate the political class about so that they can build that legislative framework, that liability framework, and flesh out that digital identity framework? The first thing we need to know is how is the data being used? Do we have an understanding of the power of data and what it's driving? You know, in, in our world, when we talk about privacy, we say that, you know, there's really a fine line between cool and creepy, right? <laughs> yes, very much so. So, so, so it, it could be really cool that, you know, you walk into a mall and you get, you know, three offers from stores in the mall. Oh, really cool. The app does that. It could be really, really creepy if you walk into, say, the airport and the machine recognizes your face and says, hello, Mr. Sinha, welcome, right? And, you know, it, one is, you know, a big brother type scenario, Right? And the other one is, oh, this is really nice. I can actually use this. 
And so understanding that becomes the first part of, you know, saying that how do we create that liability framework is understanding how the data is being used. Then making sure that the way the data is being used aligns with the purpose for which you asked consent for. So if you ask consent for me for something, are you able to explain to me in clear and you know, plain English what that consent or, or French, what um, you're asking for? And am I okay to give you that particular consent? And when you sort of bring these two things together, then you start talking about digital identity and all of those aspects of data which I own. And then you start maybe stratifying in a way the types of data about myself. So if, if you were to think about your own identity or my own identity, you know, one is I am who I am. So I've got a date of birth. I've got, you know, a name, a legal name. And there are aspects of my identity which are, say, issued by the government. A driver's license is an identity aspect issued by government. Passport is one, right? Those are parts of my identity. Um, I may have a police record. It's part of my identity. Not positive, but, you know, it's part of my identity, right? I, I may have, you know, um, my browsing history, which could be tied to part of my identity. I, I could have, you know, um, other aspects of my demographic profile, say who my friends are and, you know, what sort of conversations am I having. So all of those things are part of my identity, right? Now, we need the flexibility to empower the consumer to say, I am willing to share this with you, say my driver's license, for the purposes of identifying I am who I am, but I'm not willing to share these other things with you. But there's another party and I have a different kind of relationship with this other service provider and I'm willing to share you know, something else. I, I might have to, by law, share um, you know, my police record with my employer, right? And, and all of those sort of connections and, and uh, you know, if you were to try and visualize this with the person at the center and all of these different sort of um, tangents would sort of ref, um, represent the different kinds of interactions that I have with people around me or organizations around me and the context of that, that's what we want to try and solve through this digital identity problem. Are you telling me privacy is not dead? It is dead. How do we revive it? By putting a framework which allows the consumer to get control of their information and select who they want to share what and for what purpose. Abhishek, thank you so much for your time and insight. You're very welcome. Abhishek Sinha is a partner at EY. Still to come from a physically distant CD Howe. Provinces in the red, crisis debt loads. The annual David Laidler Lecture Webinar with Dr. Kyle Hanneman, Assistant Professor of Political Studies at Queen's University. Paul Jenkins, former Senior Deputy Governor of the Bank of Canada and a C.D. Howe Senior Fellow. And National Bank Financial's Head of FICC Strategy and Managing Director Warren Lovely. That's October 15th. On the 20th, how liberalism made us rich and pretty good too. The Scholars Webinar Series with Dr. Deirdre McCloskey, the Distinguished Professor Emerita of Economics and History at the University of Illinois at Chicago. I'm Michael Hainsworth. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy. Stay safe. You've been listening to the C.D. Howe Institute podcast with Michael Hainsworth. Subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. 
The C.D. Howe Institute is an independent, not-for-profit research institute whose mission is to raise living standards by fostering economically sound public policies. The Institute is widely considered to be Canada's most influential think tank and a trusted source of essential policy intelligence, distinguished by nonpartisan, evidence-based research and subject to definitive expert review. Visit cdhow.org and follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you.